Okay, welcome back everybody. I'm so sorry for delays. I want to start off by first of all thanking the Shulmans um, for to Rabbi Laser and Mireille Shulman. Where are the Shulmans? Oh, there we are. Um, who, are who are sponsoring the Ili Nishmas, Mireille's father, Rabbi, um, uh, uh, mother, Esther Tova, Bas Rav Eliezer Hakoyhen. Rav Eliezer Hakohen, Olav Aleho Hashalom, that's Hashem. As we continue to watch the children, the grandchildren, the great grandchildren grow and prosper spiritually and physically, and that's Hashem. continue Thank you for, for making this the, this share the venue for the continued learning. Okay, so let's let, let's start learning about a fascinating subject, which is nature and nurture, Judaism and environmentalism. I'd like to just there's a lot to talk about, so I apologize for the missed few minutes. Let's really try to de delve into what is a fascinating, fascinating subject. So, start, starting at the beginning, I'd like to, to, to address a few issues in the subject. The first issue is, is the actual, what is the issue itself? Like, what are we facing? Like, technically and really, what are, what are we really facing? So, a number of years ago, there was a famous book which was written called The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating book. It, it, it was a lot of research that she did which contributed to the awareness against specifically um, pesticides. Um, and um, DDT, as a, the banning of DDT was, was catalyzed through this research. And she starts off the book with this most terrifying description. This is really the first chapter. I just want to just a few excerpts from the first chapter to get a sense of the tone that she uses. So she talks about this beautiful valley, this out-of-town valley in America, where the birds chirp and the, and the cows low. And the, uh, it's this beautiful description of this harmonious, beautiful place and everywhere. And during the, during the autumn, you see all the different color foliage in the birch trees and the oak trees along the side of the road and birds in the spring. It's a beautiful description. And then she says, then she describes the bottom of the first, uh, the, on, on the first page, the bottom of the first column on the left, then a strange blight crept across the air over the area, and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled in the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens. Cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere there was a shadow of death. The farmers spoke of much illness among their families. In the town, the doctors became more and more puzzled by the new kinds of sickness appearing among the patients. There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among the adults or even among the children. They would, suddenly, it would, stricken, they would be stricken suddenly while I'd play and die within a few hours. There was a strange sigh of stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were mar moribund. They, had tre they trembled violently and could not fly. In the spring, with, it was a spring without voices. On the mornings that they had, that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other birds, Voices were there, uh, uh, of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and the woods and the marsh. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chicks hatched. The farmers complained that they were unable to raise any pig litters, uh, 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 any pigs. The litters were too small, and the young survived only a few days. The apple trees were, covered in, were coming into bloom, but no bees um, droned among the blossoms. So there was no pollination, and there would be no fruit. The roadsides, once so attractive, were now lined with brown and withered vegetation, as though swept by fire. These, too, were silent, deserted by all living things. Even the streams were now lifeless. Anglers no longer visited them, for all the fish had died. In the gutters uh, um, under the eaves and between the shingles of, of the roofs, a white granular powder had, which still showed in a few pa patches. Some weeks before it had fallen like snow upon the roofs and the lawns, the fields and the streams. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the birth 
the rebirth of the new life in the stricken world. The people had done it to themselves. That's, that's a, it's a shocking description. And she makes a point. This is a little bit complicated because this is demagoguery. She, this, listen to how she explains this. This town does not actually exist. But it might easily have a thousand counterparts in America or somewhere else in the world. I know of no community that has experienced all the misfortune of, uh, misfortunes I described, yet every one of these disasters has actually happened somewhere. Meaning every description she's had of here is a result of the human chemicals that we put into the environment, which is, which is coming back to us. She's just, she's just simply colliding them into or condensing them into one particular town. And this, this, this began the conversation many years ago, this is before it was popular, about this, just the discussion of what are we doing to ourselves? What are, what are human beings, for the sake of their own lifestyle and expectations of lifestyle, doing something for themselves? So in 1992, the world scientists issued the following letter. This was signed by 1,700 of the world's leading scientists. Among them, um, a majority of the Nobel laureates in physics. Right, so we're talking about people who, who know what they're talking about. And the introduction to this is a long letter, but they talk about basically in the introduction it gives you a sense of what's going on. Human beings and the natural world on a collision course. Human activities inflict harsh and often irreversible damages on the, damage on the environment and on critical resources. If not checked, many of our current practices put at serious risk the future that we wish for human society and the planet and the animal kingdoms. And may so alter the living world that we are unable to sustain life in the manner that we know. Fundamental changes are urgent if we are not to avoid the collision our present course will bring about. And it discusses in detail water resources, oceans, soil, forests, living species. Just in the living species section, just to give a sense of what, what, what we're talking about over here. They're talking about the, um, the essentially one-third of all species living may be dead by 2100 if the, if the current state of usage or abusage is going to continue. That's a shocking, a shocking uh, a, a number. And by the way, every, every piece of the ecosystem, once it drops, we have no idea all the pieces that it were hold, held up by that, by that specific species in the ecosystem. We always learn afterwards what actually happened. We're talking, we're, this, this is what they issued in 1992. Now, obviously, many changes have been issued. Regulations have been instituted in many countries. But let's be honest. It's only the Western countries that really care about these things right now. Right? Means that China is not interested in these things. They're not interested in in in, in viability. They have a they, they have a population which is growing and expanding. Well, what, this is this is a first world. Maybe might consider these things. Just appreciate this. Now let's go to the, go, go a little further in terms of sustainability. This is an article in Scientific American American released 16 years ago in 2002. Rachel Muller. to assess the sustainability of the past and present human activity, Mathis Wacker Nagel. And his colleagues did, for, did two things. First, they quantified the actual amount of land and water resources needed to meet human demand for food, shelter, and fuel, among other things. Then they estimated the actual productivity of the Earth's lands and oceans. When the researchers compared supply and demand, that's a basic thing to think about. I mean, like, there is only a certain amount of supply. They found that in 1999, the most recent year they examined, humanity consumed 120% of Earth's sustainable or, consistent, um, or consistently replenishable resource <coughs> capacity. So they actually measured that since the 1960s, we were up to 70% of the returnable resources of the world. That means to say that it would replenish on an annual basis. Since the 1970s, essentially, we've been consuming more than the Earth can replenish. And we're becoming more. And we're becoming bigger, and our, our aspirations through media have become higher because our, our style of life has become earlier. Either consumer nature of society has increased, 
This is, this is where we're going. Just to get a sense of the facts of, of the facts on the ground. This is, this is where we're at. The question is, is what do we do about this? So, so, so what is the, re the reaction of, uh, of humans and particular religion? So, it's interesting. In, in, this is, an, this is a, a New York Times article um, in 1970. You can find, you have to, you have to buy this from the, uh, from the archives just to get a hold. This is a, this is a watershed, uh, watershed moment um, New York Times article. It was an op-ed on May 1st, 1970. Of course, this is around the time that people are starting to become aware of things. Right before, before the oil crisis, we're, we're, now we're starting to realize what's going on. And it describes um, the, a conference which was held in Claremont, California, progressive thinking happening on the west over here, where a group of Protestant theologians go, gathered together to describe religion's place in the, in, in the environmental crisis. What does religion have to say about this, or what is religion's part in it? Take a look in the first column of this article. Remember when, remember when our newspaper columns used to be this thin, right? So this is, uh, so this, uh, on the left-hand side um, of our column, about four paragraphs in. Very interesting. The photo on the line is virtually fascinating. Virtually all of the scholars agreed that the traditional Christian attitude towards, uh, towards nature had given the sanction to exploitation of the environment by science and technology and thus contributed to air, water pollution, overpopulation and other ecological threats. Meaning to say who's to blame for this is religion, organized religion. Right? Because, why? Basic to this assertion is the commandment in Genesis 1.28, Aleph Rafres, for man to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that, mad that moves upon the earth. Fascinating. And then it goes on and describes that there are some people who disagree. Nonetheless, whose problem is it, asserts this, the, this conference representing all of religion naturally, is the, is the Old Testament, the Judeo-Christian values of, 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 uh, of, of controlling the world. This is, the, this is where it, um, it lies, meaning the basic assumption of American Western society based on Judeo-Christian values is what is allowing this to happen. I'm going to save because just because of the sake of time. Um, is, uh, is, is, is what allows the platform for it. Notice, by the way, that there are two things in that verse which environmentalism or sensitivity is attacking. One is human consumerism, but there's another aspect to that. What is else is there? Population. Population. Okay, so we have to just be very, very aware of this. When you speak to a hardcore environmental agency or a hardcore environmentalist, there are two attacks on religion. One is consumerism and the other one is overpopulation. We are going to have to just, when we investigate this and we take a little bit of a study in this in Judaism, there is no way for the overpopulation aspect of it to, to jive with Judaism. Just, just simple as that. The Torah does say we should, we should have children. And the Torah says we should have many children, Puruvu. There's no way to read that otherwise. It's the consumerism aspect which we may need to investigate. But just appreciate this. We, Judaism, just to start off, is incompatible with that view that we all should be limited to one child per family. They said it would end by okay? 2000. That's right? what I wanted to say. I well, I grew up, I read these things. They said by 2000, the world would be overpopulated and there wouldn't be enough. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. So we, we have outgrown that, but that, part of that is because of the regulations. Part of that is because of the regulations which instituted because of this. Just to appreciate this. What now, about Lavdo Shamra? That's what's well, 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 we haven't started. We've just seen an, an accusation from a New York Times article. That's all we've seen right now. We've not studied any Torah. 
Okay, um, this, this is one aspect of it. Just, just to appreciate some of the religion, this, this, so this is an accusatory response. There are other responses. Here's another example. Hila Halke, Halke, Jewish thinker um, of late, actually before we get to, to oh, wait a second, I'm sorry, I'm still in here. So Hila Halke, he, he's responding in, in 2007 to an article in the Ford. The Ford talks about, are there any extras that's floating around if anybody else needs it? That's all right. Ariel? That's all right. Yeah, that's all right. Maybe, maybe Ariel can go, go as well. Thank you so much. So on page, on page four, Hillel Halkin has an article. He talks about reading an article about eco-Judaism in the forward. And here's what he says about it. He says, he, second paragraph, why do I find this concept so silly? It's certainly not because I doubt the importance of environmental values if the planet is to remain livable. And certainly not because I think that Judaism, a religion in which I grew up and am reasonably well-versed, even if I don't observe very much of it today, shouldn't try to make itself relevant to contemporary problems. But there's a big difference between trying to make Judaism relevant to contemporary problems and trying to turn it into a reflection of contemporary attitudes. And it's the latter of these two activities that eco-Judaism is engaged in. As such, it's really like many other kinds of modern Judaism before it, starting with the reform movement in the 19th century in Germany, more of an eco-Judaism, meaning we're echoing the values we're hearing in society. I'd like to propose a simple test to determine if eco-Judaism is a natural outgrowth of Jewish theology and thought. Suppose if you're not already an environmentalist, would a knowledge of rabbinic Jewish texts and traditions turn you into one? That's his, that's his acid test. The answer, of course, is no. The fact that it, uh, is that rabbinic Judaism traditionally has very little to say about environmental problems. It's the, uh, for the simple reason that Jews have lived in the, for the better part of their history in the diaspora, and the diaspora never cons considered them it, uh, is never considered by them to be their true environment. The rabbis thought about many things, but the environment, in the sense of, in which the word is now used, was never one of them. So one of the responses. So one response is religion is absolutely to blame. Another response is. Religion has nothing to say about it. <coughs> Meaning you do your thing, humans, and religion will tell you about how to religiously guide your lives, but the two have nothing in common. Very different, very different responses. Right? So if we walk away from either one of these, we walk away with tremendous guilt and trying to, uh, we'll call it theological conflict within ourselves, or we walk away saying that, no, we have nothing, you know, we're going to put on our tefillin and daven and do whatever it is that we do in the world and let the, let, let the scientists and let the, the politicians figure out the regulations necessary to be able to stop ourselves destroying ourselves. And that's the way we walk away. But I'd like to argue that, of course, naturally, there's a lot more, there's a lot more to this. There's a lot, lot more to this. And so let, let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at, um, at, uh, at the beginning of this. I just want to just, just actually mention that in, in the process of this, a few years ago, Abby Deanstag, um, Abby's not here this morning, um, took me to visit um, the, uh, the chambers of the Honorable Jack Weinstein, who live and be well, who is the oldest federal um, court, district court judge sitting on bench, still rendering decisions, an incredible human being. I believe he's 96 years old right now. So we actually met, this is actually the room we met in, actually, um, which, is, um, which, is, um, which is his boardroom. And we met with his entire staff because he gives an annual lecture on a particular topic in his synagogue in, in his temple in, uh, in Great Neck. And the topic he wanted to give that year was environmentalism. And Judaism, what's the, what's the relationship? So I have the distinct privilege of, with, with Abby, having pre pre preparing a portfolio and discussing with him these issues on a bigger, bigger scale. He was actually, he served in World War II as a soldier, and he landed on um, the Canary Islands as, a, as an American soldier. And he's describing how today they are, within the next few years, the water level, the water table is rising because of the melting ice caps, and those islands will disappear. So he's talking about it. So what, what is going to be? Well, how do we relate to this? How should we, we, we regulate this? Where, what's the solution? If anybody's interested, I'd, like, I'd, like to send, I'd be happy to send you his article. 
in which he wrote following this discussion, which is a very fascinating article um, on Judaism's responsibility on this. So nonetheless, let's go into the, some, of the, some of the actual facts itself. So the first, we're going to look at three models. Three models in Judaism, these are not, certainly not exhaustive models, but these are potentially models which require further development. And that is what's called the stewardship model. This is a, what I would argue is a religious model. So let's go back to that, uh, that pasuk that was argued in, um, in the, that article in the New York Times. The good Torah tells us in Aleph Chav Ches, Upon creating human beings, Hashem says, blesses them. Hashem says, Conquer the land. That sounds pretty, that sounds pretty powerful. Let's put, all, let's put all the pipelines in that we need, sounds like over here, right? Um, and control, take dominion over the, over the fish of the sea. Sounds like it's carte blanche. Control to any of, of, of anything in the world. So man, humankind, is given dominion over both the fauna and the flora. Right? Seems pretty explicit over here. Whether it be the, the, the animal kingdom, whether it be the plant kingdom, use it as you, as you need. And this is where the accusation comes in. The problem is, is that is that politicians and scientists are not Bible scholars. And as much as I'd like to read a little bit of Bible and quote little pieces of Bible, you simply cannot become a Bible scholar because you know one verse. And so you need to see things in broader context. <coughs> right? So you need, to, you need to read things. So as an example, just to, just to appreciate things, when you turn to the next chapter, right? This is not, this is not rocket science, folks. This is the <laughs> next chapter. Right? So in Pebracious, Bayes, Tezvod, Literally, within 30 psukim, the, the Torah tells us, <coughs> As Dr. Yeager pointed out, L'avda means to cultivate, L'shamra means to preserve it. We have to see what that means. That means to say automatically, without even going to any rabbinic texts, it seems to be that there's a check and balance with Redu Bidgasayam. Fascinating, right? Translation? Meaning, Whose translation is this? This is, this is Mechon Mamre. Don't, don't, don't take it as, to, as Torah Misenah. Um, so, um, <coughs> I'm saying, if, when, if you're a Bible scholar and you're reading the translation, it may not, Good the call. genre may not be there. A hundred percent, yes. And that's, why, and that's why, if you really want to understand what Hashem meant, you have to learn Hebrew. Right? So, <laughs> the translations simply are, are inadequate. But nonetheless, <coughs> we have to work out what those words mean. But before going any further, without getting into rabbinic texts even, we just see that it's not simply as carte blanche as it seems. You have to say, understand what that means. Here's a few examples of, we'll call it, limitations on Urudu Bigasayam. One example, the Malbim in Source 7. The Malbim says, Shezetolui, this is dependent, Only dependent on human action do we have the right, do we have the license to be able to, to rule the earth. But should we not be morally worthy of it, then in fact the opposite will happen. The land will take control of us. <coughs> when you just, by the way, without putting, pointing fingers, we don't ever know anybody else's cash pointers. But there's been a lot of natural disasters, folks. There's been a lot of natural disasters in the, in the past while. There are lots of problems in the world. It should be a realization it should be clear to us that we are not Uradubit Gasayam. It should be clear that we don't have dominion over the earth. Because look what can happen in a few minutes. Look what can happen in a few minutes. Hashem Yazo, Hashem should protect us. But think about this for a second. What the Malbim is saying is, it's not yours. And I'll show you it's not yours. 
Right now, we're not saying that that particular community in California or that whatever else is going on, chas shalom, is, but we should realize that maybe as humanity as a whole, if we're not living up to what humans are supposed to be, maybe we don't have the, the, that, that, that license anymore, says the Malbim. Now, and he goes on to the end of the Malbim and he quotes the Sifrei. This is, this is, this is a halachic rabbinic uh, um, text. He says, Cain Wow, the Sifrei says, if we're Zoichim, if we have the merit necessary, then we're at the top of the totem pole. We have the right to, we'll call it, consume or use or elevate the world. But should we not be willing, then the Yirdu, the word doesn't mean redu from dominion, but it means we will descend. We are below, right? We do not, we have no rights. We are controlled by the world. This is the moment, it's not so simple. There's a moral code attached, that's the fine print, right? You, you, we need to understand what we, what's necessary to be able to do this. Another example, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, in, I'm, I'm discussing this, this, this concept. If he controls the creature as Adam, if we control it as a human being with the image of God, then they willingly accept the yoke of his control. His control does not constitute subjugation and degradation, but is an elevation for them and involves them in divine freedom. The whole world submits willingly to a man who is pure and serves his creator. If, however, man misuses his position and does not control the world as a creature, as Adam, as the representative and deputy of God, but by his own power and by his own might of his own hand, then the living creatures do not willingly submit to him. Wow. So Rav Hirsch says in a similar way, the only way to do it is as Adam. If we're not acting like Adam, then that's it. We, do, we don't get that. It doesn't work that way. We have no right over the world itself. This is what, this is what we call the stewardship model. In fact, Mesir HaShoshan, Rav Moshe Chaim in his first parak, in his famous Musar work, quotes a famous Medrash Al-Qaylas. I'm sure we've all heard this Medrash, but it's worthwhile re- um, re-evaluating. Take a look in source now at the beginning. We'll do the first paragraph and then um, extemporaneously. He says, mm-hmm. He quotes a Medrash in Qaylas which says the following. See the acts of God. This is a post in Qaylas, which is the basis of this discussion. When God created the first human, when Hashem created the first human being, He took him and He showed him all the different species of plants. Look at the ecosystem. Look how it's interdependent. Look how beautiful, look how magnificent it is. I created it for you, human. Be very careful. That you don't destroy my world. In fact, the measure says because if you destroy it, nobody's going to fix it. That's the last line of the measure, which he admits. And he says, why is that? He, he goes on to say that, spiritually speaking, we know that in fact we are in a prosdar. We are in an antechamber to the hall, to the, to, the, to the ulam. Which means that this world is a means. It's a vehicle towards. You have no right in the waiting room to destroy the chair you're sitting on. I mean, like, what, who are you? <laughs> you? You overturn the fish tank in the dentist's office. Like, what are you doing? Right? You're waiting to get... What, what are you doing? Right, says the Mishra Shashayim. You don't have rights in this world. It's only simply a means for you to be able to activate yourself, to, to rectify yourself. And if destroying the world is part of it, then, then you're not getting into the next room. They're not letting you in. Right? So the Mishra Shashayim points out that just theologically it's necessary to understand this. 
examples. I want to give you just a, just a few examples of where this plays itself out in in specific example uh, in specific cases. So, for instance, coming back to we're going to skip Rav Soloveitchik now. Adam one, Adam two, the two modes of Adam's existential relationship with with the world, but really in a lonely man, lonely man of faith is dealing with specifically this two modes of Adam, Barashas Aleph, Barashas Bays. How how there's different ways humanity relates to nature. The whole book is about this. But going, going a little further, not, not getting into, into, that, into, the, into the meat of that right now. Um, the the Chiyaz Kuni. What does it mean, L'Avda or L'Shamra? Let's just think about those words for a second. L'Avda means, L'Aved, to, 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 to work something. What are, you, what are you doing? I'm working something. You're improving it. I'm improving it. I'm improving it, right? So I take, let's say, a lump of clay. L'Avda means to say I'm going to fashion it. I'm going to give it something. I'm going to make it into something. I'm going to take a little piece off. I'm going to add a little piece to it. I'm going to put it in the kiln. I'm going to do something to improve its value. <coughs> What's the Shomra mean? The Shomra means to preserve, to guard. That's the opposite word. Isn't that interesting? L'avda the Shomra itself is a, in a, in an oxymoronic phrase. <coughs> the, the, the idea of advancing something and preserving something at the same time is actually at, at odds with one another. So how does this work? Chizkoni says, very simple, very simple, we experience this all the time. Take a look at source 11. L'shamra, shuloyim resenu raglei behemo, chayav ashadayin lohu yoloyim la'atacherem me'akrovim. He says, our option number one is, we should make sure that the animal kingdom is subdued, that it's not going to destroy the world. That's usually not the problem, by the way. Um, at this point, he's talking about Gan Eden. But he says, Dovar acher, l'ovda al shem sheshes yomim ta'avoyed, l'shamra al shem shomores yom ha'shavas. Brilliant. Which means to say, built into our system of life, are six days of advancing and one day of preserving. Which means it's not fully a system of advancing, it's not fully a system of preserving. We're not just simply there to preserve it, we actually have to cultivate it and elevate it, but there is a time for each. It's interesting to think about Hashem's ratio, which is a one to seven ratio. Fascinating, right? In terms of preservation and utilization. That's a worthwhile thought as to the way Hashem um, viewed this. There are some people, when you speak to them about environmentalism, they will say that we should do nothing. Right? I mean, to say we should just basically sit down and not do anything to disturb the natural order. Now, it's important to understand that extreme responses are necessary to respond to extreme consumerism. That's, that's true. But in the Torah's balanced system, there certainly seems to be an amount that we're supposed to be doing here with the remembrance that every seven days it's not ours. There is no natural cycle for seven days. There's, no, there's nothing that's revolving, rotating, uh, um, uh, going full circle in orbit to create seven days. Seven days is God's system of saying, remember, it's not yours. More than that, this is what, this is what um, Rabbi Dr. Grunfeld, Rabbi Grunfeld was the original translator of Hirsch into English. The original translation of the Rav Hirsch on the Torah into in, in English, Diane Grunfeld. So he, he suggests in his book called The Sabbath, he, he talks about exactly this idea, he says in Source 12, the unique provisions of the Sabbath law serve to keep the very practical consideration in the forefront of our minds. We are stopped on this day from ex exercising our characteristic human powers of producing and creating in the material world. That's what we're supposed to be remembering. Let's remember it's not ours, it's on lease. And when you, when you have a lease, they inspect it when you take it back. Just the way it works. Right, so you're going to have to explain all those debts. Right? And even the insurance doesn't usually cover all the things that happen from parking in the city. Right? So this is, this is just the way it works. Another example over here is, um, is moving into, we talked about a little bit of Shabbos, the idea of Kilayim. Fascinating. Kilayim. The Sefer Achinov says, why is it that the Torah expects us not to mix certain things? There's lots of non-mixed things in Judaism, right? 
So, you know, there's, there's uh, shatnes is one example of not mixing. So we're not allowed to mix wool and linen. We, uh, we, there's all that, which is the, uh, wool, which is the animal kingdom and the, and, the, and the plant kingdom. We're not supposed to mix meat and, meat, meat and milk. We're not supposed to mix also kilaim in growing things. When we mix different seeds, grape seeds, there's a lot of non-mixing. How does this work? So it's interesting, the Sefer HaChinuch suggests, I'm not going to read inside just for the sake of time consideration, the Sefer HaChinuch in Source 13 says that it actually, at the root, it's also related to witchcraft and sorcery. Where you, take, where you take elements in the world that God said should be, Hashem said should be a certain way, Hashem had certain silos, and you, you're, you're mixing those silos of creation. You, you say, oh, let me make an improvement, I'll just, you know, I'll just put these two things together and, and mix them. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, no, 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 I created everything leminehu, Everything has its species, everything has its type. You need to make sure that you preserve that natural system in order for us, in order for the, for the system to be, uh, to, to be worthy. Which are examples being on the spiritual level, these, but on a physical level, one could also, it's not a far jump to say that that means to say as well, there's certain things in the world which exist. Don't mess them up. Don't, don't, don't contrive them. Every time we, 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 we go do a shatnes test, we shouldn't just be thinking about, oh my goodness, it's so long to schlep it there and get it back and pay the money and why I wanted the suit for Yom Tov and it wasn't, right, all the things that go through our mind when, when shatnes comes, in, in, uh, comes into play. We should be thinking about what the Sefer is saying is, this is one way we ensure our Kodesh Baruch Hu reminds us to preserve the world that he, uh, that he created. So doesn't have to be universal? Great question. So in the limitation of the stewardship model, to Mark's point, which is a good point, is although this is universal because it's speaking to all of humanity, we're only looking at Barashas, Aleph, and Bayes right now. It is interesting that only really Judaism actually focuses on these to a large degree. Now, I'm not speaking for, 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 for Christian theology, but at this point in time, it, we who learn the Torah are reading this model. But again, in India, they're not exactly reading this, right? So this is not going to be the, the, the proof text necessary for the regulations made in a population control or, or environmental regulation in India, as an example. Which is why it's important to, to appreciate that there are other models which are more universal. Okay, so just, uh, just as, as, a well, as, as a point well taken. That's model number one. Model number two. Model number two is wanton destruction. Take a look at this mitzvah. We all know this mitzvah. Um, <laughs> give, it, give it a name in just a, in, in, in just a moment as we read it. So, um, source 14, Devarim Perekhov, Pasikates. Kisatsuril ir yomimra rabim lelachem tafsa. If you are going to um, um, besiege a city for many days in, in, a, in a fight, in a war, do not cut down its trees because, you, um, the per, uh, because you're going to need those fruits and the human being is likened to the, 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 the tree of the field. Famously, homiletically, what that means. What myths are we talking about over here? What's the, what we, what's the way we call this? This is the mitzvah called Baltashkes. <coughs> it's interesting. Most people, you know, most people associate the mitzvah Baltashkes as you know, the half a sandwich left in the lunchroom when they're kids, right? And somebody says, if you don't eat that, it's, ba- it's, it's Baltashkes, right? But the actual, just coming back to the, ba- the, the, the Torah commandment itself, the Torah commandment of Baltashkes is in the stage, in a stage of siege, you are not allowed to cut down specifically fruit trees. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, how far does this go? How far does this go? It's interesting that, 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 that what, I, what I like to do, okay, let, let, let's, let's look at two things. Let's look at extent and limitations. How far does this go? So he has, he has two examples. This is only examples. In Source 16, the Sifre, the Salachic Medrash on this Pasuk says, What about I'm cutting the water supply to that tree? I'm not chopping it down actively, but I am actually cutting its water supply. And what, what do I do in that case? 
I'm not allowed to destroy it in any way. That's much more passive, isn't that interesting? So it's not even active destruction, but perhaps causative destruction is also included in Baltashkes. But at this point in time, we're still limited to only fruit trees, right? That's a pretty small piece of nature, isn't it? So the Gemara says in Shabbos on Daf Kuf Memon Beis, you eat one kind of thing that you and you you could have eaten another type of food. So I don't consume what I what I could have. In that case, it's also baltashkes. So I eat. I go. I go the higher level. So I want to eat something which I don't need. That's considered baltashkes. The Gemara then goes on to, to reject this, but the Gemara actually says, entertains the possibility of me eating something I don't need as being, a, being, a, being an aspect of Baltashkes. Um, the Rambam, when paskening this, the Rambam, when paskening these halachas, says, if you take a look in source 18, the very last paragraph, halacha yud, says explicitly, you, you, you know, you break anything in your house, wantonly. The Korea begodim tear clothes. Horais binyan destroying a building. Soyseim ma'ayon you block up a spring. Ma'abed ma'acholas ter chashchos. This is where our third grade teacher got it from. And not not finishing that sandwich, destroying it unnecessarily. Oyvim yishon bal tashkes ve'ena loike elamakos malchus b'midiraim. This is an extension, this is midirabon, an extension of of bal tashkes. This is our local bal tashkes. Ooh, so that's pretty extensive. What are the limitations? So there are a number of limitations in halacha as well. Examples. Take a look at the exceptions on the top of the page. Here's a translation of the Gori Babakama. Unless the value of the wood is greater than the value of the fruit. So I'm cutting it down. Why? Because it's a pear tree. Pear trees are fantastic wood, right? And, 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 the, and the value of pear trees today is you can't, you can't just buy a pear tree and a pear wood in the, in the stores. Right? So if you, if you have a pear tree in your backyard, the value of the wood is, is high. Unless the destruction is for protection of health. Unless the destruction is, is for... Um, if, if, uh, for um, aesthetic prefer- preference, and that's for ge- uh, personal gratification of personal psychological need. Just to be clear, clear that Gomorrah and Shabbos is referring to a case where the anger of a person is, is the cathartic expression of that person's anger is necessary through this distraction. Now, that, that's, those are a number of exceptions. Some of them are Paskin and Lahalacha. Now, of course, every time there's a fruit tree, one should ask a question. There are Kabbalistic aspects to this mitzvah as well, which one does not want to be, no, to be transgressing. There's very serious ramifications for destroying fruit trees, just to be aware of this. But it sounds like there is, again, seems to be, as with all good values, its intention. Meaning to say, there seems to be a human-centric recognition. At the same time, there seems to be a divine, nature-specific um, consideration. And there seems to be a spectrum as to where we put that needle, where in the gray it is that we're allowed to do things. So as opposed to full environmentalism, which means that you don't destroy anything you see, you don't, you know, you put, you put uh, nets over your mouth before you breathe in, because you don't want to, don't want to consume any of the, in the, any of the small flies in the air, right, which is, done in, which is practiced in certain countries. And as opposed to a person who goes wherever they do and simply puts pipelines and destroys anything they see because of human, of human consumption, I like that mountain, let me put a house on top of it, right, so my, um, th- th- that, kind of, that kind of attitude to the world, there seems to be a balance of where Baltashkes works. Now, let's make it a little, a little, pra- a little more practical. came across just a fascinating shiver, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi uh, Josh Flug um, um, came across this. He has some of the exceptions for health, for, for the needs of money, for destroying your house. But in terms of like just the, the putting the, together some of the, pie, the pieces of this, um, there's a there's a, a shiva of Rav Sofer. He's one of the one of the children, the grandchildren of the Chasim Sofer. In his, resp- his response, they're called his Shiva. 
he asked the following fascinating question. T think about what this, uh, the, 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 this, uh, about this question for a second, because this is really in our lives in a real way. He asks, first of all, what seems to be a theoretical question, which is, is there what's called a chatsi shiur on Baal Tashkes? What, let's, you know, generally speaking, there are, there, are legal, there are legal measures as to when I'm, a, when I'm transgressing certain averas. So what, is there a, let's say the legal shiur, the legal capacity is, you know, a kazais, as an example. So destroying, destroying a kazais of food, a wantami. What happens if I'm doing half a kazais? Can I destroy... Can I destroy something which is not really amounting to a full legal capacity? That's his question. He discusses it because there's numerous models that we see where you see, like, say, for instance, you know, Hashavas Aveda, there's limitations on a Chatsi Shir. There's certain times where a Chatsi Shir is Aster. How do we view um, um, Baal Tashkes? But then he goes further and he asks the following basic question. What happens if what is at stake is not money, what is at stake is not my property, what is, and or my health, what is at stake is my time? So let's say it takes a long time, it, it'll take from me time to avoid this distraction. So what's at stake on the one hand is my time, and time's worth money, isn't it? And the other hand is protecting this piece of the environment. This is a very practical question, yeah. right? We can frame it in different ways. It takes time to recycle things. I have to go out, and in Lawrence, at least the law is you have to buy your own, your own recycling container. Right, I have to, on Friday mornings, I have to go put it out. So it takes me time. So in that, in that case, is... Uh, is that a consideration? Do you say, well, do we see that the, the Torah does allow for certain things, right? The Torah does allow for certain things to, uh, um, and my, when, let's say, my, my money is at stake, when I'm going to, it's dangerous to my yard, it's dangerous to my house. So maybe, maybe this should also, and that would, what about my time? He says, well, no. He says, the Torah tells you to do mitzvahs. And when you have to do mitzvahs, it takes time. You can't say my time is a consideration when the Torah tells you to use it in such a way. So meaning to say, says the Hisaris Chuvara Sofer, very simply, very simply, is the Torah is expecting of us to use our time to protect the things around us, even when it isn't necessarily adding up to a shear. Fascinating, a fascinating point. It is interesting that if you look in the edition, this is the last Teshuvah of Chelek Beis in, in, in the actual Chuvas, there, the, there is the publisher's note. The publisher was his son. And the publisher makes a note over here, in the, uh, this is actually in the in the notes, in source 20, he actually adds on a note to his father's writing. Fascinating insight. And he, and he, and he says the following. Let's just see if we can get to the exact, the exact thing. He says, <coughs> he talks about, actually let me just say it outside just for the sake of time, but it's talking about Aniyah's deity. He says the following. What happens if you are in the middle of, your, um, um, of the road and you're walking along and you see your neighbor's donkey walking right on? Let's forget it. Let's say it's not even your neighbor's donkey. You see a donkey which is clearly walking with harness like, you know, dragging on the ground, you know that the bridle's drag dragging on the ground, you know that, that this belongs to somebody. So the mitzvah is, right? You can't hide yourself. You have to go. You need, there's a mitzvah of Hashem You can't ignore it. What happens if you're riding on your donkey and by saving that fellow's donkey, you are now going to put your own donkey at risk? Right? So now the trade-off is, is I don't find any donkey lock-up stations. You know, there's the, you know, the bike stands, that donkey stands in those days. So I don't find any other stands around. If I go and run after that one, I'm going to probably end up losing my donkey. You can make, you can, you know, maybe Shalakaim Shnaihem, right? Maybe you could do both. Let's, let's make a suggestion where there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no and. There's an either-or situation. What do you do? So Allah is, Allah Paskin Shulchan Arach is, your Aveda also meaning your Aveda 
precedes other people's Aveda. Basic, right? Makes sense. The Sma, one of the commentators on Shukharach says, Aha, what about your time? What about your time? What happens if I'm losing, what I stand to lose is not my own donkey, but my time? The Sma says, he paskins, that if your time is worth money, that actually, that may be a consideration for Ashavah Zaveda. That's a shocking idea, because then who would ever be a good Samaritan, right? Who would ever do this? Interesting enough, that's what the Sma paskins. He says, maybe the parallel exists over here. Maybe over here, if what you're losing is time, maybe as well. What are they debating? Well, you see over here the debate that goes on. In halacha is, where do you put that pin? In the, in, in the spectrum of wanton destruction versus destruction that's for a meaning or usage for a particular purpose. Not so simple as an example. Just to see it in the halacha context. Another example of this um, in, in halacha is, is the Chazonish famously says, but you know that you remember that case the Sifrei talks about where it says that let's say you have a, a channel of water coming to a tree and you cut it off. That's also considered part of biblical Baltashkes. So, 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 so the, the Chazonish says, no, that's only in a case where there's a constant flow. But let's say my expectation is to, is to water the tree every day. I stop watering the tree every day. That isn't Baltashkes because it is too disconnected from the, the tree. It's not like I'm actually stopping the life source. I'm simply withholding my regular waterings. Now that's interesting because that also gives us a new rubric. What about over here where I'm not actively destroying nature, but my lack of preservation is going to potentially lead to something else, as an example. We see over here just halachic examples of where it's not so simple how far the law of, of Baltashkes ex exists. This is another halacha. This is, we'll call it, this is the halachic model of looking at this. Again, not universal. Finally, the last, and I think this is perhaps the most basic idea, is the halachas shchenim. Hilchas shchenim is one of the hardest halachas for people to, to, to perform. The halachas of neighbors. And uh, especially when pe people are living in, in close quarters. Just the way, it, it, it just, uh, it, it, this, is, this is one of the most interesting and most complicated debates one will ever hear are between neighbors. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated because you can have really wonderful people, wonderful, upstanding, good people who live good lives and do good things and they just cannot get along with their neighbors. And, and many times for, for understandable reasons, for completely understandable reasons. But it really brings out, unfortunately, sometimes the worst in people. And what people do, what people say, what people play, what people don't play, what people shine, what people don't shine, is very complicated. The Mishnahis and Bhavabhasu deal with this in the, in the second parak. The Mishnahis the talk about numerous limitations in Hilchos Shchenim, on the lochas of neighbors. Um, and that is the examples. These are the Mishnahis. Mishnah Gimel Perak Bayez, Lo Yivchas, Lo Yirivtach, Adam Chanos, Shanachtome, Vishal Tzaboim, Tachas, Oitzora, Shal Chavere. You cannot open up a bakery. You cannot open up a, a, um, a, a, a factory which dyes materials underneath your, your friend's storehouse. Why not? The fumes, the fumes are going upwards, right? Just a, li a basic limitation, right? And you cannot have a cattle yard or cattle shed near somebody else's winery, right? So let's say somebody opens up a store in your, on your particular, on your particular floor in your building, right? So you can say, I can't sleep. You have clients that come at 11.30 at night and they're ringing the bell and they're stomping in the hallways and they're talking. I can say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't live. I've got young kids. I can't, I can't deal with the noise, as an example. 
another example, the Mishnah Ches. Marachikin Gorin Kovu Aminair, Chameshimama. You have to, uh, you have to uh, um, set aside a threshing floor, 50 Amos, which is not, a lot, not an extensive amount of space from the city. You have to, if you're having a garden cover, you're doing threshing, which is noisy, which is dirty, which is, you have to have it at least 50 amas from the side of your property or from the city. It's not going to affect your friends' fields. Right, you have to distance carcasses, graves, tanneries from the from the, the city. Next Mishnah. Uh, uh, we actually did this one. Let's say your tree is leaning over the Rosh Hashanah. You have a basic responsibility to cut it. To cut it that people can ride underneath it. A person in there and a camel can ride underneath it. There's a lot of Hilchashenim, not so simple. The, the, these are passing the halacha. Um, what is interesting, what is interesting today, is as we are getting to some of the more specifics in the halacha, just for the sake of time now. But if you think about this, this perhaps is the biggest argument for environmentalism today from a Jewish perspective. And that is, is that when it was, you know, a city of the sum total of 237 people and three kids living all together, and then we needed to talk about tanneries and factories and shops, and then okay. What happens now when the sum total population is 330 million, right? So now we're talking about America. And the borders are artificial, so let's include Canada and Mexico as an example. And I want to just throw in some of the, you know, the, the islands along the, along the coast and um, other coasts. We're talking about a lot of people. Actions which happen here are going to affect the neighbors. That, that's, that's it. Because there's, it it's, it's no longer about A and B living next door to each other in an apartment building. It's now A and B living to, next to each other in cities, in towns, in Flint, Michigan, right? The, the neighbors now become a little more complicated. Just to put things in perspective over here, in, in Source 27, this is the, a Guardian article just from, I, I actually saw this um, re recently, um, this article, very shocking article in, in September 2017. Uh, it says, microplastic contamination has been found in tap water in countries around the world, leading to calls from scientists for urgent research on the implications for health. Scores of tap water samples from more than a dozen nations were analyzed by scientists for an investigation by Orb Media, who shared findings with Guardian. Overall, 83% of the samples were contaminated with plastic fibers. This means, that means fibers of plastic you cannot see, which are in the water. The U.S. had the highest contamination, contamination rate at 94% of the plastic fibers found in tap water sampled at sites, including Congress buildings, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency headquarters, and Trump Tower, New York. Now, that's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, like, okay, who cares? If it's there, it's anywhere. But they're, 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 point, they're trying to make a point. Lebanon and India had the, high, the next highest rates. Um, um, examples as well. <coughs> Natural Geographic. In developing countries, 70% of the industrial waste are dumped untreated into waters, polluting the unusable water supply. We had that in America uh, just over a century ago. At the time of the Chicago World's Fair, at the turn of the, turn of the 20th century, they were not able to use the water supplies in Chicago simply because of the contamination of the water supply in Chicago. They had to, bring in, they had to pump in water from outside because of the dead horses that were thrown into the river and so on. It took a long time to reverse that. But there are a lot of neighbors involved in this situation over here. There are lots of people who suffer. Atmospheric pollution, as an example over here, is from a book called The Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. He talks about leaded, leaded fuel. We all remember when non-leaded fuel became, became regulated, right? That, that you, can, you only can have non-leaded fuel. But you know how long leaded fuel was being used? And, and what was the contribution to leaded fuel? The reason it was used was because in the gearbox, it ran more smoothly. There was less of a noise in the gearbox, which was, by the way, easily avoidable in other ways. Okay? It was used... What was that? It also made the cars more powerful. Okay, it made the cars more powerful. That's true. 
but it is interesting that it took decades of lobbying, decades of research, and the company's mega multi-billions were spent in defending lead. In fact, the owner of Ethel at the time was, was, was once recorded an advert of himself washing his hands in leaded gas, in leaded gasoline, and then and, and, and being fired afterwards. After he was taken out from the, from the ad set, he vomited, he, he died. It, 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 we're talking about there were terrible people defending, um, de defending leaded, 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 leaded gasoline. Interestingly enough, today, just to appreciate this, the, uh, um, in the last paragraph, to his great credit, Pazza never wavered a buckled. Eventually, his efforts led to the introduction of the Clean Air Act in 1970 and finally to the removal from, from, from the sale of all leaded gasoline in the United States in 1986. By the way, by the way, there's 13. I believe it is $13 billion of, of business is still done outside of America for non-leaded petrol. Yeah. Just to, because the, the, the regulations are not being the used. The vehicles at the airport still use leaded There you go. I'm saying like, even, even okay. yeah. uh, meaning to say, yeah. the regulations are only so much, and they're only in America, and they're only in certain countries. There's a very, Ethel's doing quite well in other countries right now. But almost immediately, the lead levels of the blood America, uh, of Americans fell by 80%. <coughs> However, Listen to this, but the lead is forever for those of us alive is about 625 times the amount in the 1920s. Okay, so that cut off the end of the paragraph. 625 times higher than the 1920s. That means to say that now, if we manage this, we're, we're a number of years past the Clean Air Act. We're still, we're still suffering with this. The lead levels, why is it our children? It's the lead, lead in paint, but also the lead in the air when our children are, 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 are being tested. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems that we're still dealing with. This is what I would call the social model. There's the, there's the we'll call the stewardship model. Beratius, read Beratius carefully. Are we given carte blanche? There's the halachic model, Baltashkas, how far does it extend? Where do we put the pin on that spectrum necessarily to understand where we have right and where we have to desist? But the neighbor's model is the most universal and most obvious model. And that is where environmentalism where it really does play effect in Judaism. This is halacha. And that is the neighbors have become bigger. The players have become bigger. The, the, the victims have become more numerous. And to end, finally, just to um, um, end with uh, the immortal words of somebody who came well before his time. And that is Dr. <laughs> Um, it says, unless someone like you from the Lorax, by the way, the Lorax was published long before it became, po became popular. <laughs> he was one of the front runners of environmental thinking. And he stands on a stand, the Lorax says, says unless some, someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And uh, th this, is the, this is a really a revolutionary, revolutionary moment in history. Unfortunately, it was only the children who heard this, but those children became adults. And hopefully, we can be a little more sensitive to the consumeristic society that we live in to be able to hopefully for our children and grandchildren to live in a better place.